episode of Mormon Discussion. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook at LDS Leadership Principles. You can also find this podcast on iTunes or at its host site, mormondiscussion.podbean.com. In today's episode, I interview my friend, Chris Reeve. Member of the church, used to live in my ward, someone who served with me in leadership callings. Before we get to the interview, I also want to inform you that there is a conference for Mormons in the Middle, April 27th at Kirtland, Ohio. The registration can be found at sunstonemagazine.com slash symposium. The conference is April 26th through the 28th. I will be speaking on the night of the 27th in the Kirtland Temple. I hope to see you there. Now on to my interview with Chris Reeve. Chris Reeve, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you doing today? Good, Bill. How are you? Excellent, excellent. So maybe to give my listeners just a little bit of background, you and I know each other. I guess maybe the simplest way to explain it to the listeners would be that at one point you lived in my ward for about two years, three years? Yeah. Does that sound right? Yeah, it was about three years. So Chris, to kind of start us off, the reason I thought this interview would be of worth and and you seemed interested in doing this, you're a smart guy who I, I look up to and I think you from an intellectual level, handle difficult issues very well. In your time serving with me in in the bishopric in our ward, it was very easy to see that you were uh, smarter than the average guy. And so as I've kind of gone through creating this podcast and beginning to kind of talk about these issues for people, you approached me having heard this podcast, correct? Or or how did you first um, catch on to what I was doing? I listened to your FAIR interview and I can't remember if I saw a link on Facebook, but I remember listening to that. And that was the first time that I was aware that you really struggled with faith crisis. And so after that, I sent some emails back and forth, and I started looking at your blog, listening to some of the interviews, and uh, wanted to see if, if you thought it would be worthwhile to have a little interview with me. So, And this is great, because I, I know you a lot better than the other people I've interviewed, and uh, so hopefully this will make for an interesting conversation there are some things I don't know about you, and so why don't you start off helping me understand and my listeners uh, a little bit more about you. Tell me about your growing up. I grew up uh, in the Seattle, Washington area, raised in the church, active my whole life. Uh, three older sisters, one younger brother. My parents were pretty strict growing up, stricter than the average parent, I would say. So as an example, I never watched E.T. until I was an adult. <laughs> okay. Why was that? That's a good question. And I never quite figured out what it was about E.T. that was so offensive. I think there was a small amount of profanity that that, uh, my parents found offensive. They watched it when I was a kid and I was interested in it. And they said, well, when you're 13 or 14, you can watch that movie. Okay. So, So, go ahead. By the time I was 13 or 14, you know, I lost interest in it. And it wasn't until we were married and my wife was, you know, shocked that I'd never seen this movie, and so we had to watch it, and so we watched it. <laughs> awesome. So, well, how was the movie? <laughs> did you did you feel like you missed out on something? Yeah. Actually, the nerd in me was, it was a like a digital remastered version of E.T., and so the nerd in me was trying to figure out, okay, which of these effects have been switched from the original 1982 puppetry? That's what I was trying to do when I was watching the movie. And you probably want your whole childhood eating M&M's, never knowing about Reese's Pieces, right? Right, right, right. 
Excellent. So, so you've watched E.T. Where do we go from there? <laughs> so the, the strictness of my upbringing, while amusing, uh, it started contributing to tension between me and other people because I would see how I was raised and what my parents were expecting of me and requiring of me, so to speak, the rules of my household. And it was different from other peers in and out of the church, what they would see, what they would watch, what they would do. And so there was a little bit of self-consciousness on my part, but there was kind of also this identity question of, of how do I fit in personally and how does the church fit into people's lives? Kind of those questions. It really came to a head in when I started attending Boy Scouts and I was, I guess, 11 and 12. And I started every week spending more time. And I guess it's kind of started in Cub Scouts before that, but really Boy Scouts is when I remember seeing, you know, peers that I'd spent some time with the church, but not a lot of time. But now every week I was kind of with them and hearing the jokes they were talking about and they were my peers. I was spending a lot of time with them, going to activities with them. As an example, one time I went to a scouting uh, overnight, and, and they wanted to play strip poker. You know, I, I wasn't interested in that, and I didn't understand why uh, I should be. And so, you know, there were things like that that I just didn't understand. And so there was a little bit of confusion and tension a little bit with me and other people. And to kind of come up, and I think this is what a lot of people at some point struggle with, kind of. The gospel ideal as we see it as compared to how other people apply the gospel in their lives. Because it's different. Right. So you're growing up, you're in a household that is stricter than most. Do you, did that, let me put it this way. A lot of people I talk to, when they talk about being raised in a strict household, when we talk about that being within the, the LDS realm, a lot of people will also relate that to very fundamental households. Did you grow up in a very fundamental household as far as a very tight line of LDS theology that, that your family believed in? That's a good question. So I guess what you might be wondering is, you know, how does my dad feel about evolution or correct? how does my mom feel about, the, you know, the feminist mystique or something like that? Yeah. And, and uh, my parents are both very orthodox and very traditional. My dad is analytical. My, my mother's not the most analytical person in the world. Um, so dad would, and still to this day, reads a lot of apologetics. He loves Hugh Nibley. And that was one of my introductions to anti-Mormon literature and movements was dad, some nighttime discussion or some other setting, deciding to tell me about Fawn Brody, No Man Knows My History. But what he really wanted me to tell me about was Hugh Nibley's review of that book. Okay. No, ma'am, that's not history. Exactly. And to me, it always struck me as very flippant and glib, the, the Hugh Nibley response, not really meeting her on her terms. But that's just kind of for me personally. But he introduced a lot of different topics. Blood Atonement, I think, was discussed. The Mountain Meadows Massacre. Certainly polygamy was discussed at length. Uh, the Adam God theory was discussed. So there were a number of these kind of controversial things that some people that go to church and don't have the kind of the cultural breadth of what the church is all about and the deep history may not know that much about. But for me, I was somewhat comfortable or at least familiar with them and familiar with kind of this traditional apologetic response. So for me, to this day, polygamy doesn't bother me as much as it bothers a lot of other people. And it, I think it goes back to, as a child, I'd heard about it, and I'd heard kind of the, my dad, again, kind of intellectual, in a sense, very orthodox, but he read the Journal of Discourses, so he's familiar with many of the arguments the 19th century brethren would, and there were many, 
would put forward to defend polygamy as something that was appropriate, something that was righteous, something that was not worthy of the persecution that, as the church saw, they were receiving from the federal government at that time. So I was familiar with those and other apologetic responses to these kind of traditional sticking points for many Latter-day Saints. How old were you when uh, he started to introduce this stuff? I cannot imagine or remember being much younger than 13 or 14. I may have been a little younger than that, but I was probably out of primary. And maybe I should preface this a little bit, too. While my childhood had angst and loneliness and insecurity, as everyone's does, I had spiritual experiences also. So the church wasn't just a tool that my parents used to control me. I never really saw the church that way. I always saw the church as what it purported to be. And when I started reading the Book of Mormon more than just kind of at a cursory glance, I was still in primary. And when I really got into the Book of Mormon, I would read the first few chapters of First Nephi many, many times, and that really didn't do very much for me. But once I started really reading it and reading it at length, I found what President Benson's talked about, the power of the book in my life, and I found kind of the spiritual power, the power of revelation, if you will. Uh, and those spiritual experiences, which I had when I was quite young, have stayed with me my whole life. So that was really how I saw the church through these spiritual experiences. For me, that defined what the church was and what it had to offer me. And so hearing about these other problematic events and hearing kind of the standard apologetic response, yes, it was very one-sided. But that coupled with my testimony, none of that really seemed detrimental. So later on in life, when I come across many people that apparently are unfamiliar with the Mountain Meadows Massacre or unfamiliar with polygamy or the Adam-God theory, part of me has a difficult time understanding why it's so problematic, but then I go back to, okay, I kind of knew this stuff most of my life, and it never bothered me. So what if there was something that I hadn't known about, and it just sprung on me? And so, for me personally, it was almost like I was inoculated, in a sense, from some of these difficult sticking points. Do you think your dad shared that stuff with you because he wanted to inoculate you? Maybe he was, perhaps he was struggling on his own end with some of these, and by recounting the questions and the answers was satisfying to him to have somebody else kind of on board with those answers? What do you think the reason was he did that? It's a very good question. I do tend to think that Dad had some sort of interest or fascination with anti-Mormonism as a movement, and I don't know that he struggled with his faith. I would say that he's probably more interested in inoculating me and my brother, who heard many of the same discussions. I haven't talked with my brother about this in a long time, but he was party to many of these discussions. Sure. Is your brother active in the church? Yes, he is. He's All of my siblings have been active in the church. Uh, another experience in as a teenager that helped me understand faith crisis was there was a really intellectual person in our ward who would read books during sacrament meeting. And it wasn't the Book of Mormon. It was a scholar, scholarly work. And he would read and highlight while the speaker was speaking. This is the kind of person that would go up and bear his testimony about the philosophical underpinnings of the Constitution, as inspired by Rousseau and Locke, and that was the kind of person that this, this man was, very intellectual. Anyway, I recall I was a teenager at some point, and I kind of aspired at some level to be semi-scholarly, semi-intellectual, and so I was interested in, in some of the books that he was reading, and he had a book about the Book of Mormon geography from, I think it was John Sorensen, kind of the preeminent Mormon scholar on where Book of Mormon geography makes the most sense. 
And I was very fascinated and interested by this book at first. I started reading it, and I realized that in contradistinction, in contrast to the spiritual power I remember from the Book of Mormon and from other spiritual experiences, reading the scholarly work was somewhat interesting, but it was dry, and it completely lacked the spiritual power and energy that I associated with the church in general. And that and several other experiences really, in my mind, helped me understand that faith is different than reason, that they're separate. Now, in, in the Latter-day Saint tradition, we use both, but it's perfectly possible to use reason, even talking about Mormonism or Latter-day Saints, and ignore completely faith. And it's also possible to downplay reason and just overemphasize faith. And one of the powers or strengths of Mormonism is it uses both. But for me, when I started diving more into the scholarly, I realized that spiritually I'm not getting anything out of this. And it helped me understand the difference between an academic pursuit versus a spiritual pursuit. And realized that in the church you can do both. Or you can do neither. Or you can do one or the other. And I like that point because there are a lot of people who are in the middle of a faith crisis or have lost belief completely, and they demand that these issues be talked about at length in church. And like you're pointing out, if we focus too much on the the intellectual, the reasoning, and we leave out the faith and don't make that predominant in, in our church meetings, then we're not really doing a whole lot of good for the people who come in every Sunday, at least the majority of them, uh, for the three-hour block. Right, yeah. To me, again, there was the spiritual and there was the physical, and those are different. So... When I heard Elder Packer's uh, teaching about how the testimony is hidden from the skeptic and the doubter and the cynic, it resonated with me. Because when I was more cynical or skeptic or doubting about things, it was more difficult to feel the Holy Ghost. And faith was more elusive. When I was more willing to uh, believe, more willing to trust, more humble, so to speak. It's impossible to really call yourself humble, but when I felt that way, it was a lot easier to feel spiritual things and to feel what we might say promptings, revelation, the Holy Ghost, etc. So there were a number of teachings from Elder Packer, to name it one example, that also helped me both with my issues as a youngster, I guess, so to speak, and also old, later in life. President Packer had another teaching, which has been very helpful for me as well, that when we have doubts, concerns, things that we don't know, try to put it on the top shelf, and we go with what we do know for a while. Moving kind of out of your youth and recognizing that unlike other youth, to some extent, and maybe let me preface it this way, oftentimes in the church I am talking to the youth or older members reflecting on their youth. And as I talk to people through this podcast and other avenues in helping people, there's this recognition that maybe from their perspective there weren't a whole lot of spiritual experiences when they were younger and so, moving into adulthood, they encounter these difficult things, and, and they tend to struggle with them because they don't have the spiritual experiences to rely on. You had those as a youth, and so your testimony, your foundation is is a lot more solid, maybe, than some of the other individuals I talked to. Having that childhood, growing up that way, moving out of your childhood into maybe um, being a young adult, where do things go from there? Let me back up a little bit. I always felt that my faith was close, but there were times when I realized how fragile my faith was, and if I wasn't nourishing my testimony, if I didn't retain that spirituality that attracts me to the church to this day, it would be very easy for me to see myself be filled with doubt and confusion and question and and go down a path that would be 
dark and torturous and winding, but because my fate for me always felt close. It was always at least an arm's reach away, like that President Kimball quote when he says, sometimes the heavens seem distant, but then I immerse myself in the scriptures and it seems close again. For me, my testimony, my faith was always somewhat close. So in a moment of concern about faith or even a mini faith crisis, I felt over a few hours or days or weeks or whatever it was, I could get back spiritually to where I needed to be. And I could recognize that this spiritually isn't really where I want to be. So, and I agree totally with what you said, that for people that haven't had spiritual experiences for whatever reason or haven't recognized them as such, and associate the church not with powerful spiritual experiences, but with something else, something cultural, something non-ideal in a family situation, or something with odd doctrines that are difficult to understand. You know, my heart goes out to people that live for years in the church and don't have a spiritual experience, don't feel anchored or connected to something spiritually. And so when a faith crisis does arise, what did they go back to? What does the church mean? For me, it, it was easy because it always meant these powerful spiritual experiences. That always is the core of it, and everything else is kind of the periphery. So going forward to young adulthood, again, I've been active in the church. I'm not bragging. I'm just saying that's just my experience. I've always been active in the church. It's always been something that's been important to me. And I went to BYU for college, and again, my naivete in my upbringing, again, was another time to struggle for me here, especially as a freshman at BYU. A lot of video games, a lot of, uh, you know, there's some sexual humor, there was a lot of racism, frankly, which all those things disturbed me. My elders quorum president, as one example of something that bothered me, went on a date with someone else in my ward, and they went off to some raunchy R-rated film. That bothers me. And he's my elders quorum president, he's planning on going on a mission. Why are you at BYU when that's what you want to watch? This bothered me a lot, and it seemed like there were a lot of people that I just had a hard time connecting with. I remember there was one person in my ward who I talked with him a little bit, and he said, boy, it was great to be here in the summer. I started going to BYU the, the fall after my senior year of high school. And he said, boy, the summer was great. You should have been here. And he showed me this video. They did what's called the Gallon Challenge. This is just typical college fair. It's actually very mild for most colleges, but for me it bothered me. Again, it kind of shows what a Pharisee I was or am, I suppose. But the gallon challenge, of course, is when you take a gallon of milk and you try to drink it in 20 minutes, right? And it's impossible because your body rejects the lactic acid. So inevitably, people are throwing up milk, you know. <laughs> so for college students, this is supposedly very amusing. But again, I, I'm just different, I suppose. So this was always uncomfortable and disconcerting, and it never was very funny to me. So there are a number of these things where... I realized I was different, and I lived my life differently than other people. I saw things differently. And I can't come to the conclusion that, boy, all these people don't deserve to be at BYU. I kind of had to wrestle with the idea that there's a lot of different ways to be a Mormon. There's a lot of different ways to be an active Mormon or a good Mormon. Have a testimony. And a lot of people are at different parts in their life and their testimony and their faith and their return back to Heavenly Father. And so I've struggled with this as a freshman at BYU. In the mission field, it was a little easier because the focus was on serving the mission and teaching the gospel. And so there wasn't the, the idle goofiness and silliness that was one of the things I had a hard time with. And so as a, as a missionary, again, there were spiritual experiences as a missionary, and certainly there were spiritual experiences at BYU. And I have good friends to this day that I've met at BYU. So my experience at BYU wasn't negative, per se, but there were certainly things that made it more difficult for me. So going forward into the mission field, certainly there's conflicts with companions. That's just 
as common in the mission field sure. as formal shoes and neckties. I mean, that's just going to happen. You're going to have conflict with your companions. That's just a fact of life. Some of the things that I struggled with were the kind of the clash of the divine and the mortal in the church. Again, this is kind of the theme of my recurring small, mini faith crises. The mortal within us individually and within other people and the divine in the church. So I would have spiritual experiences, but and some success as a missionary, teaching people and seeing lives change in that way of, of saying success. But on the other hand, I would see where the mortal frailties and flaws would just come to the bear, uh, come to the forefront. It would be very easy to see people struggle with things and people have challenges with things and people start directing the missionary work, not necessarily in the way that would be consistent with how Heavenly Father would like it directed, but how they thought it should be. So as an example, when I first got to the mission field, our mission was very new and the number of baptisms had increased. And so they decided to make them increase again. So they went, I think our total baptisms in the first year I was there was 550 and their goal at the beginning of the year was 500. So they actually exceeded their goal. So the next year they had some huge number. They were going to double it. They were going to have 1,200 baptisms that year. And later I heard a teaching from a general authority teaching group of mission presidents say something to the effect of, be careful what you teach your missionaries. If you ask them to baptize, they will do it, but you may not be happy with the result. And I kind of feel like, in retrospect, that's sort of what happened. The missionaries, particularly the assistants to the president, there are particularly two that kind of went almost over the edge with zealousness and baptize, 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 and almost going outside the, trying to reinvent how we teach the gospel almost to try to increase the baptisms. Went back to some obscure talk from Alvin R. Dyer in the 1960s called the Challenging and Testifying Missionary. Later, I actually learned the principles from that talk were controversial in the church and caused a lot of problems in the 1960s, but I kind of saw some of those problems 40 years later in where I served in Taiwan. And some of the problems are you baptize people, but they're not connected to the church socially. They're not necessarily converted spiritually. And so after one sacrament meeting and a week and a half of teaching, they're baptized. But if a parent is opposed to them being a member of the church, or if there's some other situation that makes it difficult for them to attend church or not participate or something they didn't understand to begin with, it makes retention extremely difficult. So towards the end of the mission, I think it was towards the end of this year, this our mission president was meeting with the stake president. He realized that even though he'd had hundreds of baptisms in the stake, the attendance had flatlined. It was just so depressing to see that hundreds of people had, been, had joined the church, but the actual church growth was... Nil. None. Just so sad to see something like that, to see people get baptized and not be embraced and and connected to the church in the way they should. And so as a missionary, I was kind of torn by following my leaders, trying to catch the vision with what the mission was doing, but at the same time kind of having this moral reticence about, is this really the right thing to do? And more often than not, I was kind of the unquestioning missionary that would try my best to do something that I didn't necessarily feel really comfortable with or didn't feel necessarily right, but I would still try to implement it. And I think as a missionary, myself and other missionaries in our mission came across the problem of anytime you read a scripture, you automatically over-apply it to yourself and you assume whatever it says is something you need to repent of. So as an example, we read scriptures about being bold or being zealous, and we think, okay, therefore we need to be more bold or more zealous than we are. Not necessarily realizing that maybe you're already fine on the boldness. Maybe you need to, you know, add juice up on your meekness or something, you know. And so boldness seemed to be such a, a, a prominent theme 
when I'm thinking missionary work, as a full-time missionary, boldness, boldness, boldness. And again, it was a lack of understanding of what the gospel really is, a lack of understanding of how to teach, a lack of understanding of how people really accept the gospel. One example of something that was completely ridiculous. The assistance to the president, I'm sure they have good motives. They taught us that there were so many people in Taiwan, and we did have about 7 million people on our mission. There's so many people in Taiwan, there's so many people ready to join the church that you should not spend more than 90 seconds talking to someone, inviting them to hear a discussion. If they're not interested after 90 seconds, you need to move on and find somebody else. And so can you imagine we're talking to someone and, you know, it's a busy rush hour traffic. There's somebody on the street uh, just going to pick up groceries and we talk to them. Hi, we're missionaries. You know, we're speaking in our, as we see it, good Chinese, but it's really broken Chinese. You know, hi, we missionary, you know, that kind of thing. We're missionaries from the church, and we have a message about Jesus Christ. And will you hear our discussion? You know, they're just here to pick up some groceries. They don't really understand even what we're talking about. But we're demanding they meet with us, you know, and, and sometimes storm off in a huff if they don't respond after 30 seconds or 90 seconds. So there's a lot of things going on about, again, the conflict between how some people think should, things should be done, kind of the mortal way of doing things, and really the divine way, which isn't necessarily how the church is always administered. And so as a missionary, saw this a lot. Another way another way I saw this was in goals. Goals were just constantly hammered to us. And this was something I kind of struggled with. If we have a limited time frame, how do we know that we can set a goal to teach someone or to find someone to be taught? How do we know that that goal is something that Heavenly Father wants us to do? And to this day, it's something I kind of struggle with. How do you make a goal that allows the Lord's will to be met, shows your faith, helps you accomplish something, it, I just never really could solve that problem. It always seemed like either I'm trying to impose on the Lord or I'm just going to say, goal schmoll. And that was something I never really resolved in my mind. So I still tried to set goals and tried to do them, failed frequently, and just kept on going with these kind of arbitrary goals. We're going to have 15 discussions this week. You know, We're going to baptize two people this month. And on and on and on. So that was another theme. Again, the mortal and the divine, kind of this idea of how do you set a goal? What does the goal mean? How do you have a goal that doesn't conflict with the will of the Lord? And to, to this day, those are still things that I kind of not really sure I, I grasp in my head. Sure. Let me uh, ask a question here. And I see there's a conflict of kind of two principles going on. One is for whatever reason in the gospel, for those who see things in a very black and white, um, naive way, and I, I use that word cautiously, it has a lot of negative attached to it. But for those who see the gospel in a black and white, naive way, there's this tendency to say that righteousness always brings blessings. And so we're in the mission field. We say, let's set a, let's set a high goal of, you know, whatever, four baptisms this, this week. And you live in an area where let's say that's, that's really the high end of being feasible. There's this thought within the black and white thinking that if I'm righteous enough, the Lord will give me four baptisms. And if I fall short of that, it's because of my unrighteousness. And we have this tendency in the church sometimes to teach it that way, that we almost go back to Old Testament Abraham, where Abraham is righteous, he does what the Lord says, and every at every turn, Abraham is blessed. And we tend to sometimes forget the example of the King of Kings, the Savior, who is way more righteous than Abraham. And at every turn, at every twist, the Savior is being persecuted and attacked for the things that he stands for. And it seems like in the mission field, I've run into way too often, now I didn't serve a mission, but, but serving as, as a leader in the church, um, joining the church at a young age and being around missionaries, it became apparent that a lot of missionaries and even some mission presidents and other, you know, assistants to the president, other people in the mission field, 
would kind of say, hey, if you're righteous, these are the great things that will happen. And when they don't, doesn't that kind of set up a missionary for kind of a downfall? I mean, you seem to have rolled with these things, kind of realizing in the back of your head that you really hadn't bought into it yet. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. That That's right. Again, it's the conflict between the divine and the mortal. There's something divine going on here. As an example, there would be people, there was one person that I met and talked to on the street, and he didn't seem interested in the discussion. I, I told him, well, you can go to church. And I told him where the meeting house was and where the time was. I may have given him a pamphlet so that he had the address. A few weeks later, I get a call from some elders, and they tell me that this person who I'd invited to church went to church. And it wasn't at the ward I was serving it. It was a different area. Went to church, heard the discussions, really motivated to get baptized, really wanted to, and remembered me. I made some great impression on him. And shame on me, I barely remembered talking to him. And so there were things like that where it seemed like there certainly were miracles. And there were other times where it was obvious there were miracles. One example, maybe the most prominent to me, was it seemed to me... And thinking back, it seems this way. Every time I shared what was then the first discussion, we talked about Joseph Smith's first vision. And we shared his statement about, I saw a pillar of light above the brightness of the sun, descending gradually till it fell upon me. And to this day, when I hear those words or I read those words, my faith, it seems to increase. And every time I remember sharing those words in the mission field, my faith increased. And most of the time, I could tell whoever I was teaching, whether they heard another discussion or not, they felt something too. You could see it in their eyes. You could see how they were carrying themselves. Their demeanor would change. Sometimes they would be sassy and sarcastic, just goofing off with some silly American. And then I start talking about God visiting a person. And you can tell the spirit is there, and they feel something. They may not act on it. They may not know what they felt, but they felt something. And so to me, that was probably the most prominent spiritual experience that really stuck out in my life was teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and seeing the gospel in reality change lives. Now, that doesn't mean those people always got baptized and always stayed faithful in the church, but nonetheless, I saw that the doctrines of the gospel changed my life and I saw it change other people's lives. And so, in the midst of this kind of struggle with what does the church really mean, how do we set goals, kind of the specificity of the gospel, so to speak, in our daily lives, There was the bigger picture, the spiritual experiences that I was having, the fact that I could have faith, that I believed in Jesus Christ, that even though I'm relatively introverted and shy, every morning after reading the scriptures, I'd be united with my companion. We'd go out and we'd want to share the gospel with people. At the end of my missionary service, I felt like that was one of the greatest miracles of every day, no matter how difficult the previous day was. I woke up, read my scriptures, said prayers. My companion and I were united, and we were ready to preach the gospel. And to this day, it just seems miraculous that every day, no matter the circumstances of the previous day, our batteries were recharged, we were physically recharged, and we were ready to go. And so the mission was, again, kind of a capsule of the church for me, but mortal imperfections with the divine power. Both were there. And at the end of the mission, this is just unique to me, maybe this is being too personal, but I always remember as a kid growing up, you know, the mission is the best two years of your life. You'll love it. You won't want to leave. You'll love the people so much. And for me, I this sounds terrible. I know it does. But I never really felt that. I never really felt such a great love for the people that anytime I say the word Taiwan, my eyes water. I, I'm not that way. And even towards the end of the mission, it wasn't like I felt like I was finishing a prison sentence. But it didn't feel like, oh, I just wish I could stay one more week. 
or I just wish I could stay two more days. I didn't feel that way. I kind of felt like, this is the end, it's time to go. And it doesn't mean I was necessarily rushing and looking forward to leaving, but there wasn't the sense that I wish I could stay. And so at the time, it was kind of a sense of guilt that if I was really righteous, kind of like what you were saying about the goals, if you're really righteous, you get that goal, right? Or if you're really righteous, you know what goal to set that you can get. Uh, and I felt like if I was really righteous, whatever that means, that I would love the mission field so much, I would never want to leave. And you'd have to drag me away with, you know, a, a team of police officers or something. You know, I just wouldn't want to leave the mission field. But for me, it wasn't that case. It was a bit of a letdown at the end that I had many spiritual experiences, kind of had this struggle throughout, and towards the end, it was almost a, a letdown in a sense, that a little anticlimactic, a little bit of a, this has been a great experience, and I've grown, and I've had a lot of challenges and a lot of blessings, and I've seen a lot of frailties on my part and weaknesses on my part, but this wasn't really what I expected. It was a lot harder than I expected and uh, showed me a lot more imperfections than I expected. So anyway, those are just some of my impressions about serving a mission. So going back to the States, I went back to BYU and uh, got married and then matured a little bit, I think. Started reading in the last few years. I haven't been married very long, but in the last few years I've read books like uh, David O. McKay and the Rise of Modern Mormonism and Rough Stone Rolling by Richard Lyman Bushman and watching The Mormons, the documentary The Mormons, the PBS documentary, and reading a lot of interviews that Helen Whitney conducted. And as I read these books, say Rough Stone Rolling or David O. McKay and the Rise of Modern Mormonism, I still saw this mortal divine. I still saw this kind of dichotomy. So I could read parts of Rough Stone Rolling, and it was about you know the, the mortal, frail boy Joseph that used magic to try to find treasure. Okay. Versus the prophet Joseph dictating revelation. And it, to me, reading Rough Stone Rolling was very striking, kind of the spirit and the feel of, and Richard Bushman kind of points this out, that considering Joseph's actual writings and teachings and letters at the time these revelations were received versus the revelation, the tone is markedly different and the spirit's markedly different. And reading these books helped me, again, bring that distinction to life. Again, mortal, divine, reason, fate. There's kind of this opposing tug there. And both are essential parts of our life, but there's a struggle. And there's a, we're not really sure where the line is between the divine and the mortal. It, it seems like a lot of members of the church have this vision that when, when President Monson wakes up in the morning, the Savior appears in the room, gives him the, the checkoff list that he wants him to accomplish for the day. And so a lot of members will say, you know, the prophet said this, so I'm going to go do it. And, and, you know, an apostle said such and such, and so it has to be true. It seems like you were well-equipped early on to be able to handle the dichotomy of prophets acting as men, perhaps half or the majority of the time, and yet in these certain occasions having this prophetic mantle upon them and acting for the Lord. And, and that seems like such an advanced way of seeing things that people like me don't encounter until our, our mid to late 30s. And, and I don't know... What do you think did that for you? What equipped you to see it that way? Well, part of it was just the experience. I had these powerful spiritual experiences that were undeniable as long as I was nourishing that faith. Now, I, I saw that if I stopped nourishing the faith, I could easily talk myself out of that, or that could become a distant memory. But if I was nourishing that faith, those experiences were reality. So that was a core. But again, I had this kind of mortal imperfection that was obviously very real, and I, was, I would always struggle with, how does that square with this? And I do remember 
again, going back to something my dad taught me, I think he said this statement that a prophet is not always a prophet. And we've heard this at General Conference, and we've heard this in other cases, but I remember hearing that, and that just made sense to me, that Joseph Smith was Joseph Smith, but he could still speak in the name of the Lord from time to time, but that didn't mean he was perfect. You know, the other hundred members, right, and I'm not trying to pick on my ward, I think my ward's a good um, example of what just the split in membership of the church would be like. So it's, I think our ward in Sandusky is very representative of the church at large. And and while I look at the members of Sandusky ward, and every single one of them have heard a prophet is only a prophet when acting as such, yet the majority of them still don't really understand what that means. And I would even add to that, and of course you've heard my interview, I knew all the difficult issues. I knew seer stones and and treasure digging and you know polygamy and some of the ills of that and things that, that, that critics pick on. And yet, when Bruce R. McConkie said something, I still said, there's an apostle speaking, that's the word of God. And I was incapable, up until three, four years ago, of separating that. And it seems like, from a young age, you were very well-equipped to do that. And it just seems remarkable to me, and I, and I think my listeners will find the same thing, that if all of them had been that equipped from a young age... And maybe it's your makeup, maybe it's your intellect, maybe it's what Dad said to you, maybe it's a combination of all of them. But, man, what a blessing. Well, I I just feel blessed. And, again, I go back to this core of spiritual experiences. I feel like without that, I don't know where I would be. But because I had this core of spiritual blessings, not just one or two, but a series of spiritual experiences in my life that would be relatively frequent, and some would be very strong, and many would be undeniable. Some would be very simple, some would not be. And uh, that was, for me, very helpful and, and very useful. To your point about the idea that there is no veil between the prophet and the Lord, it always struck me, well, I shouldn't say always, Elder Scott taught in conference a few years ago, confirmed something that I'd always really believed, that there's not just two ways that prayers are answered, there's really three. Yes, no, and what seems like silence. And Elder Scott says, that's the Lord trusting you to make decisions and teaching us that he would guide us. Now, the implication, then, is that if we're not feeling guided or directed directly, if we're not feeling guided or directed, we can make mistakes, and will make mistakes from time to time. We will stumble. To me, that's just kind of inherent in that principle, that if he's going to tell us yes, no, or silence, if we hear silence, yikes, <laughs> we, we might be free to our own devices. Now, if we stay on the straight and narrow, we should be okay, but we don't always do that. And there's the other question of discernment. Suppose the Lord says yes or no, but I struggle to discern that answer. That's possible too. The Lord answered my prayer, but I had a hard time understanding it, and so I made some mistake one way or the other. So, again, I'm going back to, and this is maybe very unusual for people that, I think it is very unusual for people that really struggle with faith crises. For me, teachings from general authorities were very helpful in understanding the principles of the gospel and helping resolve a faith crisis almost proactively so that it would almost be resolved before it really came to a serious, serious crisis. President Packer's teaching about small and simple things in the church, and when he shared his testimony in a very simple way, and he didn't see how it was earth-shattering or special, I think this is when he was called to the general authority, and the first presidency seemed appro- approving of this, and it kind of seemed befuddling to President Packer. To me, that resonates with me, that there's this small and simple set of spiritual experiences and faith that we can develop. 
again, we don't have to have earth-shattering spiritual experiences. We can have small and simple spiritual experiences. But it's very easy to get away from that and to kind of get in the weeds, so to speak. And without that spiritual connection, things your compass spiritually just doesn't really know where to go. Another, right, right. another teaching, Elder, Elder Oaks, talks about the personal line and the priesthood line. And this kind of, they're not perfectly analogous to divine immortal, of course. But, again, this helps me understand. I have a personal line of connection with Heavenly Father. There's also a priesthood line full of imperfect mortals. Okay, they're both essential, but there's two different lines there. And, again, some of these teachings, for me, have been helpful. A couple questions. One is, when you read Rough Stone Rolling, did any of that catch you off guard, or did it just roll right off your back, or had you had you already pretty much known all of those issues? I mean, especially like the the, the chapter on polyandry. The, the for me that was probably the tougher one, toughest one, because my own preconceived bad apologetic answers that I had didn't really mesh with the actual historical account, and I had to come up with a new way to think about. Polygamy and polyandry, especially polyandry. Did did Rough Stone Rolling bother you at all? Yeah, there were definitely some moments that were difficult for me. With polyandry in particular, that didn't bother me as much. I'm trying to remember specific parts of Rough Stone Rolling that I had a hard time with. But again, it was the overall theme I took from it was imperfect Joseph, but there's a divine gospel there that he's bringing about, and you can tell the difference. So going back to polyandry. And some of the other difficult questions, uh, Susan Easton Black, I was able to have a religion class from her at BYU, and she's very familiar with a lot of these thorny issues, and I guess kind of an inoculation style, or at least just the facts, ma'am, sort of approach. I took a church history class from maybe 1840 to the late 19th century, kind of a church era that we don't study all that much. You know, we have the Doctrine and Covenants that covers 1830s, but after that, we don't necessarily study the 1840s and 1860s. So this is an interesting class. But one of the things she talked about was polygamy being introduced in the church in the late 1830s, early 1840s, talking about how for most people that it was introduced to, it was not easy. They didn't want to. There was a revulsion. They were repelled by it. She told the story, which I love to think about because it seems so real to me that when John Taylor told his wife about it, Leonora, now John and Taylor and his wife Leonora were very close, she broke all the china in the house. I mean, the mad rage almost over this principle. And this is an apostle's wife, okay? a very good apostle's wife. Leonora was very faithful in the gospel. And so she shared these stories. You've heard the one, I'm sure, about Brigham Young saying the first time he ever desired the grave was when he heard about polygamy. But she also shared that in every case that she was aware, or at least in many cases that she was aware, there was a revelation that would come. And that revelation, however it came, to whoever it went to, was sufficient for that person to enter into polygamy to accept it. But that person, almost without fail evidently, required or needed some revelation before they could accept it. And so that resonated with me, that the Lord will require difficult things of us, but he'll give us what we need to know to do them. And for me, I always equated polygamy and polyandry, if you will, with the Abrahamic sacrifice of Isaac. I equated those as they're comparable to me. Because polygamy offended many sensibilities, it seemed completely in opposition to the virtues of the time, if you will, the ethic of the time, and our ethic, for that matter. Similar, similarly, Abraham was commanded by God to offer his son Isaac commanded by God to kill his son, to sacrifice his son. 
and he was willing to do that, to accept that. <clears throat> and the Doctrine and Covenants teaches that we have to be ready to do something like that too, to be chastened as Abraham was. And so to me, polygamy just fell in that notch of super difficult trial that some people had to deal with. That's just how polygamy and polyandry were. Now, of course, I also realize the limits of my knowledge. There's a lot I don't know, and a lot I won't know in mortality, and that's okay, too. I was also okay with, and, and this is something else I think that's helped me with faith crises, is realizing that my knowledge has limits, and that's okay. It's okay not to know something. That's okay. This concludes Episode 1 of my interview with Chris Reeve. A reminder again of the conference in Kirtland, April 26th, 27th, and 28th, Mormons in the Middle. You can register at www.sunstonemagazine.com slash symposium. God bless, and may the Lord warm your shoulders. Say what?